you are new here this morning and you've just come in, my name's Chris. I'm the pastor here. I'm so glad that you came to join us. Uh, we are continuing in this teaching series through Daniel called Stand. If you want to go and grab a Bible, we'll be in chapter 4 this morning. I'll, uh, I'll remind you again in a second if you need a reminder. But I'll start with a question. I wonder, I think all of us have probably been here, have you ever had one of those moments where you just thought, oh no, I have just made a huge mistake Right. Have you ever had that moment? I mean, on the small level, it's that moment where you like turn around and you shut your door behind you and your car click and you realize, what? I just locked my keys in my car and my second set is 150 miles away from here. Oh no, I've just made a huge mistake or, or there's a you know, slightly more serious mistake. You're just cruising down I-40, you know, on your way home from Thanksgiving and boom, you roll right past a higher patrolman and you're going 30 miles over the speed limit. Oops, <laughs> Right. I've just made like a $200 mistake, right, or more. Man, I just made a huge mistake. What do we do? What do you do when you make a huge mistake? Maybe you've had uh, one of those other bigger moments. Like you, you said something, and you, and you said something you shouldn't have said to a person that you wish you hadn't said it to, but it just kind of rolled over your tongue. It kind of stumbled over your teeth, tripped over your lips, and there it is, you know. Shoot. I have just made a huge mistake. What do you do? What do you do when you make a huge mistake? What is there to be done? I love on computers. There's this feature. At least there's, it's on my computer, and I hope it's on your computer. Are you familiar with the undo function? Oh, it's amazing, right? You're like, undo. Oh, whoo. Like, I didn't just waste the last two hours of my life. Undo, undo. Wouldn't it be so awesome if there was an undo function in life? You go through, look, da-da. Oh, wait, hold on. Undo. Good. I right, go this way, you know. And, but uh, like, it reminds me of uh, I got a buddy who is a, a pastor, and he is at a church, and, and it's uh, it is relevant to the story that his church is way larger than our church. Okay, so keep that in mind. There's someone at the church that was really, really getting on his nerves, just driving him crazy, and he just, oh, I can't stand this guy. And he's he's like, you know, gotten to the point where just he, he's ready to vent about this person, and so he gets on his computer and he starts to write an email to a, a buddy. And he's just telling me, man, so-and-so is a such-and-such, and I can't this and that. And if it was one of those cartoons, it would have all the little asterisks and, you know, pound sign. Like, and so he's just, and he said some things, granted, that he should not have said, uh, but he just compounded the problem. When, when he hit send, he didn't realize he had accidentally selected the email group that was to his entire church. Yeah. Undo! Undo! It was, way, like, I remember, I heard about it a couple weeks later. He's like, I immediately sent an email to everyone, like, if you just got an email from me, please don't open it. Just please, if you love me, and that didn't work. And Oh, man, what do you do when you've made a huge mistake and it doesn't seem like there's anything to do to make it better? Um, I, I think there are some places where just like, ah, just own it, you know? And, and there's some other times I really think there is a way where we can rise above and we can do better. Uh, at Venture Church, we love to look to the Bible for the answers to life's most important questions, and maybe this is one of them for you. How do I undo how do I undo a big mistake that I've made or maybe a series of mistakes? And so today, as we're continuing through this teaching series to the book of Daniel called Stand, we're going to keep on looking at the life of this guy, Daniel. Uh, the idea is that Daniel was a God chaser in the world that was not about chasing God. They just weren't for it. But yet he found a way to continue to stand. So much of Daniel's journey is the result of the actions of kings which is interesting because last week we talked about what do you do when you walk into a mess that's like not your mess. You know, it's like when you step on that chewing gum. It's not my gum. It is now, right? And it's the whole idea with how do you stand in that. Today it's the idea of how do you stand when there's a huge mistake made and you're stuck in the middle of it. I want to give you a little bit of a recap as we look at some of these kings that, 
that uh, Daniel has just had to deal with. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw that the failure of, of a Jewish king led to the, chap- the capture of all of the Jewish nobles. And so Daniel ends up being kind of exiled to Babylon and forced to work for King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in chapter 2, we saw, oh, and I need to say that during his, uh, during his capture, during that first little stint there, he had this amazing opportunity to, to stand when he wasn't willing to compromise his standards. Remember we said, I'd rather, be, uh, I'd rather be remembered for taking a stand than forgotten for blending in. And that's really what Daniel did there. In chapter 2, this was last week, we saw him uh, get to this first dream of the chapter. There are lots of dreams and visions throughout the book of Daniel. And it's something that we addressed last week. The idea that it's sometimes we're a little skeptical about people that say they have dreams. But last week we saw that Daniel's dream was confirmed by a guy who totally didn't even believe in God. Uh, a pretty interesting story. You should go back and listen to it on our podcast if you haven't heard it. But uh, we saw this first dream and we saw how Nebuchadnezzar uh, challenged Daniel. But yet Daniel was able to take a stand. Chapter 3, uh, we're actually, I'm going to call it the ironic statue. Uh, this is why. We're actually going to skip chapter 3 because... Uh, In the last two years, we've actually covered Daniel chapter 3 a couple of different times. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you know that story, let me tell you, just remind you what it was. If you don't know the story, I can tell you this much. The chapter basically focuses on Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their opportunity to stand when they were faced with uh, the opportunity to literally bow down to the king in worship. The king had built this giant golden statue of his own image, of himself, and forced people to bow to it. And if they didn't, the penalty was death. The, the reason I call this the ironic statue chapter is because, do you remember chapter 2 last week? The king had just had a dream about a giant statue that essentially God was going to destroy. And apparently Nebuchadnezzar took that as a great idea. <laughs> well, hey, it's a giant statue with my face on the top. I think I'll have one. And so it's ironic to me that he didn't even pick up what God was trying to teach him through that first dream. He builds this statue. Yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to take a stand. Um, It is the same antics of this arrogant king that lead to what happens in chapter 4. In chapter 4, I'm just calling it another dream. It's the second dream that Daniel kind of comes in contact with, at least in the book. Um, What we realize is that a lot of time has elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 4. About 30 to 35 years actually has elapsed. And so I imagine Daniel may have seen other dreams that he had to interpret. But in chapter 4, we get another one from King Nebuchadnezzar. So today we move to chapter 4. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip over there uh, on your Bible or in your device. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you today, we give them away for free. There are some Bibles scattered underneath the chairs here in the room. Please take one with you as you go. Everyone needs a good readable version of the Bible. Take that with you. Also, the scripture I'll be reading will be on the screen behind me. But as we get to chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream. So I want to jump right into chapter 4. We cool? Let's do that. Let's look at chapter 4 and let's just see where we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now let's pause real quick right here. And I want to point out something that's totally different about chapter 4 than about any other chapter in the whole Bible. But especially in the book of Daniel. And it's because chapter 4 was written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Did you see how it started? It just said King Nebuchadnezzar, and that's how he would start a letter. It's me writing. My name's Chris, so I would say, Chris, to my friends in Wilmington, right? So this is what he's saying. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and the peoples everywhere. That's strange. Uh, 
It's a letter that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar writes near the end of his life and the end of his rulership as the king of Babylon. And so, like I said, it's been about 30 or 35 years since chapter 2. So now Daniel, who was when we began the book about 15 years old, now Daniel is about 45 or 50 years old. I've been asking the question, what were you doing when you were 15? And now some of you can answer, what are you doing now that you're 45? Are you still standing for God? Daniel's amazing uh, legacy is that all throughout his life, he has a story of how he was able to stand. Daniel has become a very important person in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar needs him now more than ever. And so this opening is the opening to the letter that he writes, and it's pretty telling already. Uh, What you need to know about Nebuchadnezzar is this before we move on to chapter 4, okay? Nebuchadnezzar was not a godly king. By any stretch of the imagination, he was not a godly king. He was all about his power, his authority, his life, his kingdom, his policy. Remember uh, in chapter 3, the ironic statue chapter, he builds a 90-foot gold statue of himself and says if people don't bow down to it, he's going to kill them. In chapter 2, he's going to chop people into bits if they couldn't remember, explain his dream to him. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a godly king. For most of his life, Nebuchadnezzar was a hardcore king who didn't let anyone, not even God, be over him. I am the king. I am the ruler. That's very important. Uh, And it was God, though, who has something interesting in plan for Nebuchadnezzar's life. This is something Nebuchadnezzar doesn't realize that I want us all to grasp, okay? God had a plan for Nebuchadnezzar. He really did. He had a plan for Nebuchadnezzar. Though Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize it, the king of Babylon, it was God who gave the Jews over to the Babylonians. If you read through Jewish history throughout the Bible, God is able to hold off huge armies with no fighting over and over and over again. He's also able to rise his own army up, the Jewish army, and defeat pretty much any foe. In fact, in the time period leading up to Babylon uh, coming in and taking over, the Assyrians had been in there, and they were mighty, and they were huge. And over and over, through people like King Hezekiah, God continued to let the Jews win. If God had not wanted the Babylonians to win and take the Jews captive, they wouldn't have. Plain and simple, because he had shown his power over and over again. What's interesting, though, is that it's a tiny bit like, um, you've been to a park, and you've seen, uh, like, a mom getting in the minivan. She's like, okay, Timmy, time to go, Timmy. And Timmy's like, no, I want to swing. And mom's like, come on, Timmy. No, I'm going to swing. I'm going to do whatever I want. And she's like, okay, well, we're leaving. You done this, parents? Great trick. Yep. Shut the door, start the car, begin to back out. All of a sudden, Timmy has second thoughts. What? Mom, I need you. I don't even know where our house is. You know? and it's a tiny bit like that because in this story, uh, uh, the, the Jews are Timmy, okay? And, and uh, the mom is God. And the minivan is kind of like the Babylonians because God's like, all right, Jews, you think you don't need me? Let's just see what you do if I leave for just a minute. God withdraws his blessing from the Jews for a period of time, and they're sent into exile to Babylon. You follow that analogy? And so Nebuchadnezzar has no idea. He thinks, I'm mighty, I'm great, I've conquered all these lands. And God's like, you con- I gave them to you. I, this is my plan. Nebuchadnezzar is just a tool in the toolbox of a mighty God, yet he believes he's the mechanic. But he's not. He's not. I need to tell you all that background because when we get to verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar starts to tell his story. In this waning years of his life, something happens. Chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at the home in my palace, content and prosperous. I had a dream that made me a 
afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men in Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream. And so when the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners came, I told them the dream. But they could not interpret it for me. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing that happened last week, except 30 years earlier. I wonder if some of the same guys got caught up 35 years later. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> Hope we don't get chopped into bits, you know. But the same outcome happens. They're no help. They, they, they don't know what to tell the king. So then in verse 8, the first half of verse 8, it says, Finally, Daniel came into my presence. So then I told him the dream. And so then I'm going to summarize a lot of what's coming up just for time's sake. But in verse 10, he tells him the dream. And so there were actually two uh, visions in the dream, two parts of it. And so let me just kind of summarize uh, how they were. You're welcome to read, read ahead and look at uh, verse 10 and so on to see the full details. But basically the first part of the dream was this. There was a giant tree. And it was so huge that it touched the sky. And it was full of leaves and fruit. And all these animals had gathered in the branches and underneath it, and they were, they were feeding off of the tree. Okay? Sounds pretty nice. Big, giant tree, very prosperous tree. Uh, something out of like Airly Gardens. You ever see the, the giant live oak tree at Airly Gardens? I picture that tree now when I read that story. If you haven't seen it, ginormous tree. Big, gnarly, old, majestic tree. But then something happens in the dream that, that changes all that. Something shifts. Uh, it's it's kind of in chapter, um, in verses 13 through 15. This angel shows up. And he begins speaking in this booming loud voice. And so he says this. The angel says, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under the birds of its branches. Verse 15. But let the stumps, let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. That's the first dream. Kind of weird, right? Big tree prosperous tree, angel comes, says, we're going to have to chop this thing down, but leave the roots in the ground, bind them up in metal. Follow me? First part of the dream. Because then the second half happens. You ever had one of those dreams where it's like, uh, suddenly you were in one place and then like, I'm over here. But it's a dream, so it doesn't, it doesn't make, it's fine. Because, you know, I was at my cousin Ted's house and we were eating a pizza and then we were at the game and we won. Like, what? But it's a dream. And so this is what kind of happens here. The, the scene shifts and now in the forefront of the dream is this man. Let's describe the man. It says, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him, be, let him live with animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal. Till seven times pass for him. Most scholars would say that's seven years. And so now I'm picturing kind of this homeless vagabond, maybe long beard and hair and just just kind of drooling with insanity because it says he's got the mind of an animal and he's probably dirty and you picture him that and he's in a field. Later we find out he's eating grass. It's this weird shift from this big prosperous tree. Now we've got this pitiful man. And verse 17 is pitiful. It's pivotal. It's, it might be pitiful too. It's pivotal. Verse 17, uh, this is the angel. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. That's the dream. That's the whole dream. Tree and then crazy man in the field. This story kind of has two narratives. And I want to break them down for us today. And I think that we can learn from both of the narratives what it means to stand 
for God as a God chaser in a world that's not about chasing God. The first narrative is what Daniel did. Like he just heard this dream. Remember, he got called to do a job. What is the job? Interpret the dream. <laughs> and then the second narrative is what the king did. So what Daniel did and what the king did. So if you're taking notes, that's kind of how the rest of this is going to be broken out. What Daniel did and what the king did. So, okay, the dream's been told. And as you can imagine, King Nebuchadnezzar's kind of probably sitting there just waiting for Daniel. So, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, I believe it is right about now that Daniel starts to realize why the other wise men didn't interpret the dream for the king. Because if they had been able to interpret the dream, they would have known this dream is bad news. A, a, a second grader could tell you that. Like, okay, the tree's getting cut down, there's a crazy man. Like, this is not a good dream. You remember last week, when you don't do what the king says the way he wants, he, he will potentially chop you into pieces and burn your house down. And so that's not lost on Daniel. And so it even says there in the passage, there's kind of a moment of pause where Daniel just kind of thinks, like, well, what should I do here? Because he knows that the interpretation of the dream is not going to be pleasant to tell the king. But Daniel does what we would expect a good God-chasing person to do. He just says, I'll just trust God and tell the truth. And so he does. He begins to interpret the dream. Let's look at what he says in verse 19. So, Belteshazzar, remember that's Daniel. That's Daniel's like uh, Babylonian name. Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. In other words, like, man, I wish this was bad news for somebody else, somebody that you don't like. Verse 20, the tree you saw, let's go to verse 22, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And at this moment, I think King Nebuchadnezzar's like, yeah, I was afraid of that. <laughs> I was afraid I was the tree. And then Daniel continues in verse 24. He says, all right, well, if you want to know, this is the interpretation. Your majesty, this is the decree of the Most High. Most High, that's a nickname for God, okay, just so you, you catch that. This is the decree of the Most High, that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass. Like I said, about seven years is going to pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, I know for a fact that King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't fully hearing what Daniel just said because in just a minute we're going to find out he didn't listen. He didn't, he didn't pay attention to what Daniel said. But you got to wonder, like if someone gives you really, a really big warning, there's that moment, and I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar had that moment like, mm, what if he's right? Like, what if, I, what if God is going to cut me down? And I think maybe because he was focused so much on this first part of the dream that he might have missed the second half of the interpretation. In fact, I did. I had to read it three or four times this week when it just jumped out at me. I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty big. This is huge, actually. Verse 26, the second half of the interpretation is beautiful. It says, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots, remember that? It said, cut down the tree, but leave the roots in the ground. You're going to wrap them up in like iron and bronze and stuff, but leave them in the ground. He said, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that 
your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. I've said it so many times, and I don't want us to miss it here, that God always offers an opportunity for grace. If we're willing to turn to him, he will always rebuild us. He will always give us a way out. Now, I'm surprised for Nebuchadnezzar that that time had not already passed. I think he'd already received the period of grace. But I think God has a bigger lesson he wants to teach, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but the entire nation of Israel. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the tool of God in this situation, and that it extends to us as well. So in verse 27, Daniel shifts from being kind of wise man, and he goes to the king's advisor role that he has. And he says in verse 27, uh, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sin by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And it may be that then your prosperity will continue. You catch the advice? Daniel steps in, he's like, look, I, I saw the vision just like you did now. And let me just tell you, this is my advice. Like I said, this story kind of has two narratives, what Daniel did and what the king did. And so first we've just seen what, what Daniel did. He confronted the king's sin. Let me give you kind of a, a, a bullet point thing we can try to remember. Standing for God means confronting sin. It doesn't, and sin is not a fun thing to talk about. We don't like confronting sin. We don't like confronting our own sin, let alone, let alone other people's sin. Who am I to say that, uh, right? This is the world we live in. This is a pluralistic world where it's not popular to, believe, to, to, to admit that we might believe that there are some things that God doesn't approve of. There are some things that are actually right and some things that are actually wrong. But let me teach us a little something and remind us about something, if, if you already know it, that God is holy, and there are some things that he's opposed to simply because his very dem nature demands it. In his holiness and in his purity, he sets the standard for what is good and evil. Listen, if you wondered, like, why does God have rules? Let me teach you this in a couple of little nuggets here, okay? This is why. Because God, as his holy self, sets the standard for good. And he knows what is evil. And one of the things that defines evil for him is things that will cause us harm. So God has set up boundaries around certain things and says, don't go there, don't do this, don't say that. And a lot of times we're like that sassy teenager that's like, why? I know better than you do, mom. And God's like, really? Okay, well, just look back through history and see the other people that live just like you do and see how that worked out for them. God has set boundaries around things in our life and he says, these things are evil, they're bad for you, they're harmful to you. And we call that sin, not because we want to be a stick in the mud. But because God says, I have a standard and I really, really love you. And the cool thing about this standard is he says, I've set these boundaries around you. And if you will not go to those dangerous areas, everything in life can be done in this free space that I provided for you. It's freedom. Do whatever you want to do within the confines of the safety zone that I've set up for you. That's a short lesson and a reminder about what sin is. And another thing that's important to understand is that unless we stay away from sin and turn from sin... We can't be compatible with God's presence because God is holy. You had pure water, you would want to drink it. You put some poison in that water, it's undrinkable. What about just a little bit of poison? A little bit of anthrax, just a drop? No, you don't want to drink it because it's no longer pure. And God says, I am pure and not even a little drop of sin is compatible with my holiness. The awesome thing is he's given us a way back to holiness because we've all messed up. We've all sinned. 
He says, listen, I, I provided myself for you. I came in the form of a man. I gave my life as a sacrifice for your sin to pay the price. And I just want you to come back to me. I'll pay the debt if you'll turn to me. If you'll accept this gift, you can come to me. That, that, that sin. We cannot let sin have a pass in our life. We have to confront it. We have to confront it in our own lives. We have to confront it in the lives of people that we love. And I want you to notice what Daniel did here. Daniel understands the place of sin in God's plan. And he wants to approach this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar. And did you notice what he said there? Uh, I don't remember where it was, verse 26 or something. But he says this. Oh, verse 19. Sorry, verse 19. He says, my Lord, if only the dream had applied to your enemies and its meanings to your adversary. Like, he's saying, man, I care about you, king. Like, I, I don't want these bad things to happen to you. He approaches the king in his confrontation about sin. He approaches it from the context of a relationship. Remember, it's been 35 years since they first met. And who knows how many conversations and things they've been able to discuss over that 35 years. Sin should be confronted, but it should never be confronted to a complete stranger through a bullhorn. Or to someone that we don't know on a billboard. It needs to be done across the table, maybe over a cup of coffee or with an arm around a shoulder. Maybe through tears because it breaks our heart that we have to confront sin. But standing for God involves in confronting sin. And that's how Daniel takes a stand in this situation. And what's crazy is he realized that it could have been his life. The king could have, you know, been offended by that. And he could have called for his head on a platter. But the king doesn't. Uh, you may confront sin in people's lives. You may have to confront it in your life. But guess what? I, I want to set you up for uh, a little disappointment. Some of you know this. They may not always listen to you. And that's exactly what Daniel found out. The king didn't listen to his advice. Verse 29, 12 months later, so it's been a year, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Ah, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, I imagine there's more to this story than just this sentence. But in that one sentence, it encapsulates all of King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And right then, something snaps. And this loud, booming voice comes from heaven. It's that same angel, and he crashes in and says, Fine, Nebuchadnezzar, we sent you the dream. Daniel gave you the warning. You've had years to change, and you haven't changed a bit. And so then, in verse 33, it says, Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. In other words, he lost it all. He lost all of his status. He lost his mind. Uh, scholars believe uh, that he, he developed a mental condition where he just was unfit to be rule, ruler and unfit to be around people and basically drove his own self away and was actually living like an animal, just living off the land, maybe even actually literally eating grass. He lost it. One minute, he's wearing royal robes in a palace. And not long after that, because his heart was all about his own kingdom, he loses it all. And what's clear is that God removes him from his position. He removes him from his power, and he takes away his sense of reason. 
This dream about the tree makes me think about a tree in my own life. Uh, a few, uh, it's been several months now, I uh, chopped down a big old magnolia tree in my front yard. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with magnolia trees. Um, I love to chop them down, <laughs> and I hate them in my yard. Um, it's a love-hate, but it's more like I love to hate them. Uh, you know, they've got these giant leaves, they never go away, and they just get all in your lawnmower, and they make a big mess. I can't stand them, and so uh, and I had planned this. I premeditated the murder of this tree, and I go out, and, and, I, and I cut it down with a few uh, zoop, zoop swipes of my chainsaw. Timber tree is gone. I tell you that story because this is the reality. You know, we, we build our own worlds. We, we build our worlds around our goals and our skills and our desires and our objectives and our big picture of our life. We, we build our own thing. And to use the metaphor from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we, we grow our own tree, right? We just, we become this thing and our branches extend and we become whatever. And the cool thing is God allows that. God loves that. He's like, hey, is that what you're about? Cool. Grow, prosper, be fruitful. He loves that. Do you know why sin is such a big deal? Because sin makes us lose sight of who God is. We begin to believe our own hype. Look how big I am. Look how far out my branches reach. Look how deep my roots go. I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. And often it's that pride that breaks the straw of the camel. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's been said, you know, pride comes before what? The fall. Or destruction. Yeah, why? Because it's that one thing that just allows us to push it too far. And we believe that we are God and we are king and he is not. And like my magnolia tree, it only takes a few swipes of God's chainsaw to take it all away. We don't like to talk about that. Because in modern Christianity, we're like, no, 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 God pays my bills. He pays my bills, man. As long as I go to church, like everything hunky-dory. God's like, no, I am God, worship me. I created the universe. Give me praise. I allow you to have that awesome job and that wonderful wife and those kids. I've given you that. Will you thank me for it? Will you give me the honor? And sometimes he has to just come in and say, fine. I can take it away just as easily as I gave it. And that's what he does to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's made a big mistake. What do you do after you've made a huge mistake? My guess is that he'd probably made a lot of mistakes. You know, this story could have ended with a crazy king eating grass in the field. It really could have. A lot of our stories end that way. I messed up. I strayed away and kind of stayed there. Stayed at the bottom of the barrel for the rest of my life. And I just couldn't, couldn't get out of it. And that's where a lot of stories end, but it's awesome because God's got a bigger thing he wants to do with Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm so glad that Nebuchadnezzar turns around because we get to see it come full circle. That's not how this story ends. Remember the, the dream had the, the roots were left in the ground? Why? God said, that, you know, I'm leaving those roots in the ground because if you will turn to me, I will allow the tree to come back up. I will allow it to grow. God is always willing to grow us back from the roots if we're willing to humble ourselves and turn to him. Always. Always, always because his goal is that we be fruitful. His goal is that we be people that can love and live and shine light and worship him. Daniel had told him in verse 27, he said, Your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And it may be that then your prosperity will continue. And so after the seven years of bizarre punishment, we got to admit Nebuchadnezzar literally and figuratively come back to his senses. And so let's look at verse 34. I love this. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
raised my eyes towards heaven. Listen. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And then down, skip ahead to verse 37. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. You know, chapter 4 is not just a page from the Bible. It's not just a psalm. It's not just something written by an apostle. This was a memo written by King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, to his nation to let the world know what God had done for him. That's awesome to me. King Nebuchadnezzar was not a godly man. He was a man who worshipped idols that had been dedicated to demons. He was someone who spent decades of his life plunged into the depravity of Babylonian culture, which, believe me, was anything but Andy Griffith, okay? This is like what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. This is the type of life that he's living, worse than anything we see today. This is a man who knew evil, he knew hate, he knew murder, he knew pride, he knew indulgence. But here in the twilight years of his life, he finally decides to turn it all around and give the glory to God. And so there's a second narrative and there's a second story and a second lesson that we can learn from this. And it's the one that Nebuchadnezzar teaches. And this is it. When you've made a huge mistake, turn your eyes to God. When you've made a huge mistake, turn your eyes to God. I really like the way it was worded in our passage. He says, I raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Man, Jesus spoke a lot about the idea of repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in action. It's a course correction. Right now, I'm heading this way, and then I'm going to course correct and change this way. But the, the course correction happens because of a change in my heart. And for some of us, we're walking away from God. Like, God is this way, and we're walking this way. Repentance is that going, I recognize that I need to turn back to God. So for us, it might be a 180 degree turnaround to re-aim our lives at God. But I, I don't want us to overlook this. Sometimes we just get off course by just a couple degrees. Repentance is still aiming my life back at God. And so whether you're this person or you're just like a little bit cockeyed, <laughs> God wants repentance from us. And Jesus says that repentance restores our relationship with God Daniel wrote this advice, gave this advice to Nebuchadnezzar, and I think he would give it to us as well. Please accept my advice. Renounce your sin by doing what is right. When you made a huge mistake, turn your eyes to God. And the grace of God extends to all of us. No matter how far we've gone, no matter what we've done or where we've been, God's goal isn't to cut us down. That's not his goal. A lot of times people give God a, we, we don't like God because we think God is all about cutting us down. No, God is about planting us and growing us and cultivating us and helping us be fruitful. That is God's goal for our life. The cutting down happens when we poison ourselves with things that aren't conducive to life, but only to being chopped down. And it's only possible for God to allow us to produce fruit in our life if we're willing to stand. Stand against sin, confront it in our lives, confront it in the, lives, the lives around us, saying, I just can't be in this environment. I've got to see things point back to God. And then we've got to be aware of our mistakes. We've got to turn our eyes back to God. See, God sees the sin in our life. He sees it. And he sees our mistake. 
But he's provided a way out for us to stand. That's what we're here for today. That's why there is church. A, a lot of us grew up in church where the whole goal was to come here and just get told how bad we are. And then we leave like, well, I guess that confirms everything I believed. No, that's not the purpose of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about restoring and rebuilding and pouring life into the lifeless and light into the darkness. God has given us a way out. There's always an opportunity for grace. Now, God never promises that life will be easy. He doesn't. There are times when it's going to be a struggle. But like the song we just sang is, hallelujah, I'm free to struggle. I'm free to struggle because God has set me free. And I can continue to live in his grace and his forgiveness. That's what Jesus gives us. That's what Jesus is all about. God putting on flesh and giving himself to us so that he can regrow us from the roots when we've messed up. Uh, I want to close with a passage from Colossians chapter 3. It's one of my favorites. Uh, in Colossians chapter 3, the, the apostle Paul is teaching. And um, he talks about this idea of raising our eyes back up to God and what it will do for us. And he says this, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, since then, you have, raised, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. What do we do when we've made a huge mistake? I raise my eyes to heaven and my sanity is restored. That's Daniel chapter 4. I'd love to pray together with you right now. God, thank you for Daniel. Thank you for the lessons he learned and the lessons he was able to teach King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, It's interesting that He says, our sanity is restored because I feel like what I find myself in is losing my mind. And maybe I've never feasted on grass like an ox, but I know that I've feasted on things that don't fill me. But I pray that for all of us, whether it's our hobbies or our habits or our addictions or just our day-to-day life, that some of the things may be innately good, that we don't forget that you are the planter of the tree, that you're the... You're the gardener, and you're the one that brings life to each one of us every day. May we produce fruit in keeping with our good works and shine that light into the world. Lord, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.